good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, our text is Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We're going to uh, make our way through, Lord willing, the entire psalm this morning. Psalm 34. And when you get there, I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Psalm 34. We believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only certain, sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking those words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand. Give us a heart to believe. Give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, we arrive at Psalm 34. And Psalm 34, if, if you, you probably have a footnote there, is listed as an acrostic, meaning that each line begins with uh, the, the next letter in succession of the Hebrew alphabet. But we also have there in the beginning of, of this psalm a note about when this psalm was penned or, or what is the, the occasion for this psalm. And it says, it's a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. 
This is a, a very fascinating story uh, that we find in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21. And if you'd like to turn there, I do want to make sure that we have all of this context before we really dive into what David is saying in this psalm. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David has, has already defeated Goliath. Uh, they were singing of David that, that he has that he's slain his ten thousands and, and Saul is angry and Saul begins to pursue David and David flees to uh, this place called Gath. And this is what the scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 10. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And chapter 22 begins and it says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And we have in Psalm 34, David's response to this deliverance. We have in Psalm 34, this response from David as being delivered from the king of Gath, Achish, and he sings and pins this song of praise to the Lord. And I'm reminded as we look at this psalm that there are true things about God that almost always demand a certain response. That, the, that there is, when we look at the truth of God, when we look at the truth about God, and when we're reminded of who God is and what he has done, almost always there is, a, there is an appropriate response to those things. That when we hear the truth, the, the appropriate response follows that hearing of the truth. And I think what we see here in Psalm 34 is, is David r- reminding us, reminding himself of the truths about God and then, and then showing us what the appropriate response to those truths are. And this morning, I really want to break this psalm down really into six pieces. And so you'll see that, that my pattern this morning will be uh, in each of these six pieces will be something that's true of God that David reminds us of. And then, and then the way that we respond, the appropriate response to that truth. And so we look this morning at Psalm 34, beginning in verses one through three. I want us to see that, that he is the Lord. Thus, we praise him. So there's truth. He is the Lord. Thus, we praise him. If you look back at verse 1, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. There's, there's this reminder here. We, we know that when we look into the scriptures or really look into any book, what we see repeated is important. And David here repeats the name of the Lord three times in these first three verses. He's reminding us of who it is that he is singing praises to. And we know that when we look at this word Lord in all capital letters in the scriptures, it's a reminder that this is the name of God, Yahweh, the, the name that he introduces himself as in Exodus chapter 3. And so if we look at Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, Moses is speaking to God and God's speaking to him from the burning bush. And it says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And this is how the Lord responds. He says, 
Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What we're reminded of when David begins this psalm with this repetition of the Lord's name, what we're reminded of is that he is the God who is. And that doesn't sound groundbreaking, but it, it contains so much in it. That when we look and he, he says, I will bless the Lord. I will bless Yahweh at all times. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to bless the Lord who has no beginning. The one who, who did not have a, a start date. The one who has no end. The one who will not fade away. Who will never end. Being the, the one who is. I am who I am. He is the one who, who existed. Who has existed for all of eternity. Who will exist for all eternity. Who has no beginning and who has no end. And not only that, who has no beginning and no end. But therefore, there is none like him. That he is the one true God. The God of the universe. He says, I will bless him at all times, the one who, who has no beginning and no end, who, who is, is unlike anything else in all the universe. And some commentators have, have even called ultimate reality, that all that we see and all that we have and all that we know to be true is, is based off of him. He has no beginning. He has no end. There's none like him. He does not change and he does not fail. He says, this is the God who, who we are praising He has no need for anything or anyone. He's perfect in himself. He's the source of all things. Everything depends on him. He says, the one who I'm blessing, the one who I'm praising, is the one who is holding the universe together. Now I think about what David has been delivered from, and he starts to sing this song of praise to God. It's so valuable for us to remember who this God is. That he's not like the supposed gods of of the nations around. That he's not like the supposed gods that others were worshiping. Because he is the God who has no beginning and no end. He is the God who is unlike anyone else. He He is in a category of his own. He does not change. He does not fail. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He's perfect in and of himself. He is the source of all things. And he says, this is the God that we praise. And speaking of repetition, David here uses six different words to describe the praise toward God. If you look at chapter or Psalm 34, verse 1, it says first, I will bless the Lord at all times. The word blessed is, uh, is one of those words that is, is interesting to see how the scriptures use it toward people and then toward God. And so we look at passages like the, the Beatitudes and we would say, uh, blessed are the meek, right? There's something true about you. If you are meek, then you get or inherit this thing. So basically to say, happy are the meek. The meek are happy because this is what they receive. The, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness are happy because this is what they receive. But the, when the scriptures bless, turn the blessing around on God, what it's rather saying is that not only are we saying that he is, we're not saying that he's happy like we would be if we were blessed. 
What we're saying is when it says, I will bless the Lord at all times, it's saying there are true things about God that are good and merely saying them is glorifying to him. There are true things about him that are, that are good. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will speak of his goodness. Not only does he say, I will bless the Lord at all times, but he says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. His praise adoration and thanksgiving towards him, to, to remember who he in fact is and what he has done and what he has promised to do. But he goes on in verse 2 and he says, my soul, the seat of my affections, where my affections lie, makes its boast in the Lord. That my, my soul boasts not in my own ability, but in, in the Lord's ability to save. I think this is valuable because we look at the occasion for this psalm and 1 Samuel 21 tells us that David is the one who pretended to be a madman. He's the one who pretended, it says, he, he let spittle run down in his beard. He was, he was acting strange. He's the one who did that. And yet he does not take the credit for his deliverance. He doesn't take the credit for his salvation. He says, my soul makes its boast in who? In the Lord, in Yahweh, in the, in the one who is the deliverer. And then he goes on in verse two, he says, let the humble hear and be glad. But the reality is, is that if we, if we are, are those who are humble, that those who, who realize our, our place, our true place is fallen humanity, when we hear of the boasting in the Lord, we're glad because the Lord is glorified and not us. And he says then in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Magnify. Let, let us proclaim the greatness of God. Let us exalt. Let us, let us praise him with enthusiasm, his name together. He, he gives us six different words here to say, this is who God is, and he is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise. But what, what does he do to describe that praise? If you look back at verse one, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. This word I, I think, is a helpful reminder here at the beginning of this psalm that David is singing this psalm as a result of the deliverance that God, that God granted him. And yet he invites us in verse 3, he invites the, the assembly to sing with him. And I think there's such power in reminding ourselves of the goodness of God by telling one another the goodness that he has done toward us. That when we get to gather together, we get to, we get to tell one another of the goodness of God toward us so that our brothers and sisters get to exult together with us, get to enjoy the, the God of the universe together with us. He says it's, it's a personal praise, right? That I will bless the Lord at all times. But not only that, it's, it's a corporate praise. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Almost as if he's saying, let me tell you what God has done grabbing them by the arm and saying, praise the Lord with me for what he has done. And he says, not only that though, it's, it's a continual praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And we ask the question, why is it a continual praise? Because we could literally never exhaust the things about God to praise. There's, there's not going to be a moment where we catch up and it's like, well, we praised him enough. He's for, we've caught up with what he's done for us. The fact that each of us is sitting here breathing, 
that our, that our hearts are beating, that our lungs are pumping oxygen is a, is a matter of praise toward him. And those are the little things compared to the, the truth of what he has done. And so we, we look at verses one through three and David says over and over again in so many different ways, I'm going to praise the Lord. And he invites those who hear and he says, come with me and praise the Lord with me. We are reminded that this is why we exist. Psalm 34.3 uh, was the verse that Sarah and I read to one another on our wedding day. It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Almost as a reminder, right, that the, the aim of, of our life together is going to be a life of magnifying and of exalting the name of the Lord. And we come together today as the church and we live our every day as the church, realizing and, and, and acknowledging that this is why we exist, to glorify our God. This is what we were made for. And so the truth is that he is the Lord, and, and the proper response then is that we praise him. But if we go on to verses 4 through 7, we see another truth, namely that he is the deliverer, and the proper response is to look to him. He is the deliverer, look to him. If you look at verse 3 again, like I said, it's almost as if David is, is gathering the people, and he says, he says, listen to what the Lord has done. And he starts to tell us what the Lord did in verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. This in and of itself is a miracle. You, you see that just even in that, that one phrase, I sought the Lord and he answered me. David understood, right? In this moment of fear, of being chased, of being, of being taken from one place to the other and of fearing for his life, he understood that there's, there's only one hope in him being sustained, that it is not his wisdom or prowess or power or his wit that's going to save him. It is only, his sustaining is only by the hand of the Lord. And he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's not like the gods of the nations around. He's not like Baal when, when the prophets of Baal are having to do all that they can do just to get his attention and he won't answer because he doesn't exist. I sought the Lord, David says, and he answered me. He answered and delivered. What does it say? He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. What else does he say in verse 5? He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. I mean, can you imagine this? this what, what he says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Matthew Henry says, when we look to the world, we are darkened, when we are, we are perplexed and at a loss. But when we look to God, from him, we have the light, both of direction and joy. And our way is made both plain and pleasant. He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The reality is that God never for a moment abandons his people. And if he never abandons his people, then there's never a moment when we look to him and he's not there. When we look to him and he has, he has not come through. When we look to him and he is absent or distracted. 
Those who look to him are radiant. Why? Because when we look to him, we see him looking back at us and in his faithfulness, he is always there. But he goes on, he says in verse six, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David, speaking of himself here, says, this poor man cried to the Lord. And what happened when he cried to the Lord? It says that the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Not some of them, but all of them. He saved him out of all of his troubles. And he goes on in verse 7 to say, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What I love about this is that David leaves the king of Gath and he goes to a cave. And that cave provides some sort of cover and some sort of safety for him. But there is no safety. There is, there is no cover. There is no encircling. There is no encampment like the encircling of the angel of the Lord. And I'm reminded that as we look at all of these things that he says are true, are these not things that we have experienced in Christ? Has he not done all of these things for us in Christ? If you look back at verse 4, has he not answered us and delivered us from our greatest fear, the fear of death? What does Jesus say in John eleven twenty five? 25? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Has he not rescued us from our greatest fear? Has he not rescued us from our greatest foe? Does he not have the keys to death in Hades. And we look at this scripture and we say, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. What fears compare to what he has already delivered us from? But not only that, if you look at verse five, has Christ not taken all of our shame and made our faces radiant? First Peter 2, verses four through six. Say, as you come to him, a living stone rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We look to him and we are reminded that he is perfectly faithful, that he never fails. And we ask the question, we go on to, to verse 6, has he not heard our cries and saved us out of all of our troubles? And we look at the troubles around us and we say, the troubles that I, that I face pale into comparison to the trouble that he has already delivered me from. He's already delivered me from, from sin and death and the devil. He's delivered me from all of my enemies. Then what else do I have to fear? He's delivered us from every single one of our enemies. If we are covered in him, in Christ, then we have no reason to be fearful and we have no reason to be ashamed because he is our refuge. Which takes us to verses 8 through 10. What we see in verses 8 through 10 is number three, that he is good. And if he is good, then the response is that we take refuge in him. Look at verse 8. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
This is why I love the Psalms because they are songs, right? And we have this, we have moments in songs that are louder. We have moments in songs where, where it seems like we cannot be contained for what the, the truth is that we are saying. And what does he say? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter picks up this language in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. And what he's saying is, have you not experienced that God is good? Have you not experienced his goodness? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This cave is nothing compared to the refuge that our God is. He says, taste and see. These these are experiential words. He says, I know these things to be true. I I looked to what I know, and I know that the Lord has no beginning and no end. I know that he's perfectly faithful. I know that, that those who look on him will not be ashamed. I know that those who, who are trusting in him will not be let down. I know that he encamps around those who fear him and that he delivers them. He's the deliverer. And he says, and taste it and see it. I've tasted it and I've seen it, he says. The Lord is good. David would go on in Psalm 105 to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your mouth is renewed like the, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David has experienced the goodness of God. And we could, we could go back all through David's life and say these, these are the different ways that we have exper- he has experienced the goodness of God. And we're reminded that in Christ, we have experienced the goodness of God. When it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, we look to 1 Peter and he says, he says you've, you've tasted and you've seen that he is good. How have we tasted and seen that he is good? Well, we've seen that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. We've seen in 1 Corinthians 6.11 that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We see in Colossians 1 that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And church, we get to look at our own experience, right? We get to look back at our lives and we say, the Lord is good because I was a wretch. I was dead in my sins and he brought me to life. I had no desire for him. I was, I was happy living in this, this life of sin and, and, and shame. And yet he rescued me out of it. I was lost and he found me. I was a slave to my sin, a slave to death, and he, he bought me with his blood. Taste and see that he is good. And who is it? Who are, who are the beneficiaries of this goodness? Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, you set apart ones, you righteous ones. And we look at verse Nine, and we say, there's no way that in and of myself, this could be said about me. There's no way in and of myself that he could say, you, his saints, and I would think that's who I am. And yet in the gospel of Christ, in the work of Christ, he trades 
my sin for his righteousness. That in his fulfilling of all righteousness, in this great exchange, he, he, he takes on my sin and it's, and it's death that that's, it causes and he gives me his righteousness. And look at the extent of this goodness. For those, verse 9, who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I want you to think about this. What is David saying? David is saying that if we fear the Lord, if we, if we look to him, then he has given us every good thing. We ask the question, well, where does this where does this good thing stem from? What are all these good things stem from? Well, the reality is that he has given us himself. And if he's given us himself, Romans 8, Romans 8 deals with this. If he's given us himself, then what else is there for him to give us? If he's given us himself, then if we have him, we don't need anything else. When he says those who fear him have no lack, that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, The truth is that in Christ, we lack no good thing. That if all that we have is Christ Jesus, then we have all that we need. And if we have all that we need in him, we're reminded of the fact that that he drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink of this goodness. That he drank all of God's wrath on our behalf so that we could drink of his goodness. And we look to this verse and we, we see that it says that those who seek him lack no good thing. And we're reminded that we were not those who sought him, but he sought us. And in his seeking of us, he has given us everything that we need. And we let covetousness die because he has given us all that we need in himself. Then he goes on in verses 11 through 14, and he, he continues with another truth. And, and this truth, I believe that he's arguing that he is God. Therefore, we fear him, we obey him. You look at verse 11. This is a moment of turbulence in the text in the sense that he's kind of gone through and talking about all of the goodness of God and he's reminding us of, of what God has done. He's, re- he's trying to, to tell the truth of what God has done for him. He's reminding us of the goodness of God. And then in verses 11 through 14, he, he kind of takes a break and he makes a command. And he says in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. We know from Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we see this kind of thrust toward wisdom. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David, it seems, says, if all of this is true, if God is as good as he says he is, if, if it's true that, that as we cry out to him, that he hears us and he rescues us from all of our troubles, then is he not worthy of our lives? Is he not worthy of all of our thoughts and words and actions? Is he not worthy of our obedience? Peter actually picks this up, this language, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter picks up the verses, really 
uh, verses 11 through 15, he says, finally, and this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him, de- let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from the evil and do good. Let him speak, seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and, and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What does Peter say that we do by the power of Christ? He says, by the power of Christ, we live in unity with one another, with sympathy toward one another, with brotherly love toward one another, with a tender heart, with a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil. And then he says, he quotes here, Psalm 34, he quotes David, and he says, if you desire a long life, you desire to see good days, let you keep your tongue from evil. Let you keep your lips from speaking deceit. Let you turn away from evil and do good. Let you seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Peter quotes here, almost as a a reminder, that as you live the Christian life by the power of the Spirit, this power of the Spirit that is in you, as you live the Christian life, as you do try to keep your tongue from evil, as you do make war on, on the, your ability to speak deceit, as you do turn away from evil and do good, as you do seek peace and pursue it, as you do these things, the world will hate you. Because this is a picture of reality that is so far from what they see as good, that they look at you and they hate you. Jesus says this in John 15, right? Don't be surprised that the world hates you. They look at this reality and they say, they say, all of these things we see in ourselves, and if you don't do them, then, then there's something wrong with you. And Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. David seems to gather the children around and say, if this is true, if God is true, and if he is actually God, if Yahweh is the Lord, then the good life, not the easy life, but the good life is the hard life of following him. That the good life, the, the, the life that is worth having, what does he say? Who loves many days that he may see good. The life that is worth having is the life of following Christ. Is it an easy life? No, it's a difficult life. But he seems to say here, the life that is worth it, the good life is a life. If this is true, if he is who he says he is, then the life worth having is a life lived in obedience to him. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, the reverence toward the Lord. If he is God, then we live in, in obedience to, to him. And we're reminded that if we're in Christ, that our obedience to him is empowered by the spirit, that he's given us a new heart and we have the ability to obey. And is he not worth obeying? 
I love how Peter ends this. It's almost as if he says, if you're going to be hated, be hated for, for loving Christ, not for being a jerk. Right? If he says, if you're going to be hated, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He is God. And if he is God, then he is worthy of our obedience. And if, if, if he demands our obedience and we understand and we believe that David and what David says is that this is the good life, that by the power of the Spirit looking to Christ, we live for him. But he goes on in verses 15 through 18 and he, he gives us another reality about God and then a, a, an appropriate response. He says, he is near, cry to him. He's near, cry to him. If you look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We look back at Psalm 34, knowing what we know about the whole testimony of Scripture. And when it says the, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, we ask the question, who is righteous? Who is righteous? There's only been one who was righteous, and he fulfilled all righteousness. And our righteousness is a result of his righteousness, that in this great exchange, we can be called righteous. We can be called saints by his work. And when, when he says the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, because the eyes of the Lord were toward the righteous one, they are toward us as well. And if we are in him, then they're toward us. And what does he say? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. I'm reminded of, of in, in Exodus when, when the Lord, when it says that the Lord saw the affliction of his people, he saw and he knew that he wasn't absent, that he wasn't far away, but he saw their cries and he saw their anguish and he knew. And here it says the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He sees the righteous. He hears their cry. And our only hope of being heard is that we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And what does he say, though, about those who do evil? He says in verse 16, the face of the Lord, though, his eyes and ears are toward the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And this is what we deserved. This is what we in our natural state deserve. We deserve to be cut off from the memory of the earth because of our sin. That we, apart from Christ, are, are wicked beyond compare. We, we, are, we are totally depraved. He says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. He sees and hears the righteous. And as David is praising him, I'm reminded this morning that we have come and we have gathered, and we've gathered to sing songs to a God who hears them. We've gathered to sing songs to a God who, whose face is toward us because of Christ's work, whose ears hear us, whose eyes see us, that he is not, he is not far off, but that he is near. 
And he is the God who hears and he's the God who sees that he's, he's not just some statue that someone has built, that he's not some, some idol that can be burned. He is the God of the universe, Yahweh, the one who has no beginning and no end. And he is not far off. He is near. And when we cry to him, he hears. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And is this not how we, we began our relationship with Christ? Is this not how it began for us that we were brokenhearted, that we realized the reality of our sins, that we were broken over the, the weight of sin that was on us, that, was, was, that we deserved the condemnation from God, that we are crushed in spirit, that we realized that we, were, that we were spiritually bankrupt, and yet he offers us new life in himself, not because we could earn it or muster up the power to get it, but just based off of his love toward us, he was near then and he is near now. He has not gone away somewhere. As Elijah asked the prophets of Baal, he's not gone on vacation. There's never a moment where he, he can't hear you because he's too far away. If you're in Christ, he is near and you can cry to him and know that he will hear you. And then he ends here. And he ends with this truth, number six, that he is the redeemer. And so we trust him. He's the redeemer, so we trust him. If you look at verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We ought not believe the lie that some would like to peddle, that those who are in Christ will never face affliction. We should not believe the lie that, that for those who, who are, have placed their faith in Jesus, all affliction ceases. David reminds us, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And we look to our Lord and we say, many were his afflictions. Was he, was he not beaten and betrayed? Was he not in the presence of his own and they, they did not believe him? They, did not, they, forset, they forsook him. Were his afflictions not many? Did he not drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What does he say in verse 20? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. We see the picture here, right? That, that Christ is crucified on our behalf and that he, he did keep his bones, that he rose from the dead to new life and a resurrection that we will join him in. And we, we, when we see and it says many are the afflictions of the righteous, we look to that and we look to our Savior and we say many were his afflictions and yet the Lord delivers him out of them all. And church, you might be in this moment right now where you feel the, the heavy weight of affliction and you might feel the heavy weight of affliction until you cross from this earth to the next one. And yet his promise is sure that he will deliver you out of all of those afflictions. That there is coming a day 
Whether your affliction lasts for five minutes or 50 years, there is coming a day when all of your afflictions will be wiped out and that you will be delivered from all of them. You've already been delivered from sin and death. And he says the afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord, Yahweh, who has the power to do it, delivers him out of them all. And yet, he says in verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And if you're here this morning and you are apart from Christ, I don't care what affliction that you have been through. The promise here is that the affliction that you are living in now is light in comparison to what awaits you. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. There is surety there. He doesn't say that they may be condemned. He doesn't say that, that they could be condemned. He says, he says the, the wicked will be slain by affliction. That the, the life that you live here is a walk in the park in comparison. And how does he end? How does he remind us of the truth here at the end for the church? He says, Yahweh, the Lord, redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He redeems the life of his servants. What's beautiful about this is that there was a moment in the past, church, where you were redeemed, that he bought you back, that he, that he brought you into the fold, that he that he. He put his love on you and he called you effectually and he justified you and he sanctified you and he glorified you. And in that moment, you were his and you belonged to him forevermore. And yet there is a moment, and we, when we look at this word redeem, what we understand is that there will be a day when all that we have trusted in and seen, all that we have praised him for, we will see face to face. And when we see him face to face, we will ultimately be redeemed. I love, in, we've been going through 1 Peter with the students, and I love the way that Peter uses the word salvation. Because Peter uses the word salvation not as, as a moment that happened in the past, but as something that is sure that will happen at the day of Christ. And he says, you were redeemed back then, but there is coming a day. You have, a, you have a, a, an inheritance that is imperishable, that it's unfading, that it's undefiled. And there will be a day when you will cross from this life to life eternal, and you will be ultimately redeemed. And there's no doubt about it. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Not one. And we're reminded that Satan would come and he would say, but look at who that person was. Look at how sinful he was. Look at how sinful he is. And we would, we would hear our doubts creep in and say, look, look how sinful you are. God could never love you. God could never bring you through to the end. And we are reminded of the truth of his word, the truth that we've just studied in the book of Romans, the truth that, that there is no one to condemn. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And we ask the question, is there anything from this moment forward that can separate us from his love? And we say, no, there is not. In all of these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says, not one of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
He will never condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He condemned Christ in your place. Your condemnation has already been filled up. There's no condemnation left for you, church. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And we join David in a song of praise to God for who he is and for what he has done. And we look at what he's done in David's life and we look at what he's done in the, the life of our Savior. We look at what he's done in our lives and we look back and we say, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord in my difficulty. I will bless the Lord in my afflictions. I will bless the Lord when everything seems to be going great. I will praise him continually. My boast is not in, in anything that I have or have done. My boast is not in my wisdom or my power or my, or my wit. My, my boast is not in my might. It's in the Lord. And I will magnify him. And I want to invite you to magnify him with me. And we get the choice tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day to be reminded of the goodness of God and to invite one another to say, come celebrate the goodness of God with me. We were dead and he made us alive. We were, we were lost and he found us. We were in slavery and he redeemed us. He bought us back. And those whom he has redeemed will never be condemned. And we get to celebrate that truth together. Let's pray.